Have you ever wondered what the point of all this is? <laughs> what are we doing here? Why is it so hard? Where's it all leading? Anybody come up with an answer to that? (laughs) I used to think in my earlier ardent years of spiritual meditation practice that um, I was seeking this very ethereal uh, goal of enlightenment, whatever the hell I thought that was something very cool and cooled out and removed from the mess of my life and my heart and my body and hovering in some kind of sky-like celestial plane and it would all be pretty chill. Some version of, you know, Anybody have a fantasy like that? (laughs) Some desire to transcend this complex, challenging, beautiful, and messy world? So it took me, I would say, about 15 years into my practice to realize that that sort of ascension was um, not it. (laughs) And I tried really hard (laughs) and uh, kind of burnt out in a certain way. Um, Life uh, decided to give my very inflated spiritual ego a big slap and tell me what maybe point me a little in, in, in a little more accurate direction, which was a little more down to earth and in my body and in my heart and actually into my pain, into my pain body, into traumas, into really difficult, dark aspects of myself that I had yet, uh, not yet included in my awareness or my path, as it were. And it began a very different trajectory of my, my, my meditation, my Dharma path, whatever we like to call it, my life, because it is my life it was. And it, um, so I went from trying to escape and transcend to try to actually inhabit and be in my body and in my heart and in the pain and in life and in the, the juicy mess of it. Because this is where it is. This is where life is. It's beautiful and it's challenging. As people have said here, it's been blissful and harrowing. Someone called their retreat harrowing. Good description. <laughs> Maybe. So... Um, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but here we are. So, um, so it was a great teaching, and then so it's been in, since about fifteen years since that time, maybe twenty now. I don't know where I have um, really um, 
shifted from the path of transcendence to the path of humanness and compassion. So for me, the, the cultivation, manifestation, and expression of love as, the, as an expression of awakening is really where the, the path becomes integrated, where we where we uh, living from a place of heartful connectedness to ourselves, to each other, to the earth, to the world. And that journey begins with ourselves, not for everybody, but for me it did, to I couldn't, I couldn't the, the, you know, the Buddha and Jesus and many great mystics talk about the power of love, Rumi extols its beauty. Um, but to fully develop the heart of love and compassion, we need to also learn how to embody and embrace all of this here, this mind, body, heart, spirit which as people commented in the questions after the meta practice, is often the hardest place. We might be caring to our children, loving to our partner, we might be doing beautiful activism in the world, and when it comes to being with myself, yuck. I don't deserve it, I don't like myself, I don't like my body, Uh, it's too self-indulgent to be kind to myself. But to me, that's without embracing this piece, our love and our compassion is limited. It's hindered in a certain way. And so we have to embrace this equally as well as embracing the world, or whatever we believe the world to be. So this practice of, of intensive retreat, as you know now, is a radical confrontation with yourself, with your experience, with who you are or who you take yourself to be. And we are challenged to show up and, and meet all of what's here. And we get to also look at how we meet what's here. Do, are we present with curiosity or disdain? Are we present with kindness or judgment? Are we present with love or rejection? or any variation of those. And we get to see that moment by moment. And this path, this life, will reveal so many different levels and dimensions of pain and challenge, struggle. And the Buddha talked about it extensively. We've talked about it some. And the question is, how do we meet that? In the same way, how do we meet anything in life? And how we meet what's going on here in this fathom-long body will be indicative of how we meet everything else or how we meet everyone else. The more we do our work here, the easier it is to relate and meet and welcome and love and hold each other and life. So that's kind of the gauntlet of practice. And it's why practice is so humbling. Because we have to turn to ourselves and meet that experience again and again. And it's not easy to be there with patience or curiosity 
or kindness or presence or generosity. And that's why we practice. That's why we call it practice. So I was thinking about um, uh, the the Dharma path, and I was, you know, there's the there's the usual framing of the Dharma path, as in many traditions, spiritual and otherwise, of the hero's journey. You know, you can think of the the Buddhist story that we refer to as the hero's journey, battling the dark forces of his mind and heart, attaining clarity and wisdom. Right? It's one way of holding it. But I don't think that's the whole. Well, that's I don't think it's the whole picture. So I was thinking of this path as the path of bearing witness, bearing witness to life in all of its unfoldings, in all of its complexities. And I also think about it as it's, it's a path of vulnerability, and it's a path of tenderness, because to truly meet experience and ourselves and life and difficulty requires a certain courageousness to be that vulnerable. Flowers don't open in the beautiful Rumi poem that Harry spoke to, don't open unless with the touch of something, touch of light, of love, of a hand, like ourselves. So the path of vulnerability is really what I want to speak to tonight, the path of tenderness, how we bring a tender-heartedness in this journey, which is actually a courageous movement because it's not easy. This, anybody notice this is not easy, this work? It's hard. We, want any, we crave distraction or something. We'll read the shampoo bottle 16 times to get away from being here because it's not easy for some reason, many reasons. So why did the Buddha teach? Why did he, after attaining tremendous clarity and wisdom and understanding, why did he teach? He taught, he decided to teach. He wasn't sure whether to teach because it was so subtle and profound as what he realized but he also saw, and when he looked at people in the human condition, he saw how people wanted to be desperately happy, like we still do 2,600 years later, and we're doing all the wrong things to go about it. Yeah. We're going about it in the wrong way. And he realized that there actually were people who could understand what he had discovered, which turned out to be true. And then when he had amassed a certain amount of uh, students and awakened uh, disciples, he sent them out to teach and to spread the teaching. He said, go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit, for the good, for the happiness of all. So this teaching came out of that deep understanding of the human condition and the and the challenging, suffering nature that's part of life and how we can transform that and how these practices can liberate that, actually. 
So in a way, everything that we do here, all the different practices that we, that we uh, develop, they're in some ways practices of compassion. If we think of compassion as the meeting and the relieving or transforming of pain and suffering. So I was teaching a retreat here some years ago and was in a group and this woman was reporting um, how she was, she, was, had sh- she was the kitchen angel, so she was, doing, she was sweeping the kitchen every day as one of her many jobs. And she noticed every day when she was doing the kitchen job, she got really tense. And being a good student, she was just being mindful of tension and, and some resentment and tightness. And, but she just you know, did her job as you know, she was told to do. And at some point she paused and she was like, what's this about? I'm just sweeping the floor. It's very zen. It's very you know, pleasant to make a dirty kitchen clean. Like, what's the problem? And she had a memory of when she was about six and her mother died. And she was, from this point on in her life, uh, responsible for the household duties, cleaning, cooking, all kinds of things, taking care of her younger siblings. And from that moment on, her childhood disappeared. And she hadn't really ever understood that. And it was only through bringing a careful, mindful attention to the tension and the, the contraction that allowed that un- to unfold and allowed a whole process of, of grief and releasing from, from, from that you know, many years of painful loss in childhood. It's a beautiful example how the practice of mindfulness, when we bring that tender attention to experience, how it can unfold and unravel in very, very mysterious ways. We we release that which we didn't even know we were releasing. You know, enlightenment is lightening the load, unburdening the burden. So uh, that clarity, awareness, kindness can help us really uh, unlighten our load. So as Harry was talking about, uh, one aspect of his talk about the three characteristics, these qualities, these facets, these aspects of every experience, I was thinking about how we, uh, you know, there's, there's this always two dimensions to practice. There's the wisdom component, there's the understanding, and then there's the compassion, kindness. How do we meet that? with heartfulness, with care. And so I was thinking about the three characteristics, as I do a lot, but I, I think about them more through the door, door of wisdom. And then I was thinking, well, these are just profound challenges in our, in our human condition. So I'll just review them and then speak to that. So the first one is obvious, the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness. Maybe you've tasted a little unsatisfactoriness here. Or maybe a lot. Or maybe the whole freaking thing has been unsatisfactory. <laughs> As some people have reported, it's been a dukkha retreat. Or a dukkha dukkha retreat. You know? And one, one aspect of dukkha, of it, and this unsatisfactoriness the Buddha called, is dukkha dukkha. Just the, the dukkha of having a body and tending to it and feeding it and bathing it and pooping it. And you know, it just takes a lot of management. 
And it kind of gets tedious you know, to clean these bones and, you know, and rush this thing and cut it every now and then. And, you know, I mean, that's just a simple form of, of the unsatisfaction. So it's just having to, you know, get enough sleep and move the body and, you know, all of that stuff. The Buddha talked about the, some simple ways of understanding dukkha, of not getting what we want. Did anybody not get what they wanted? A lot of people talked about expectations of these great retreats they've had, and this one didn't quite come up to scratch. <laughs> quite a few people. Right? Or getting what we don't want. We come on retreat, oh, it's going to be lovely. And our backache comes back, our knee pain flares up, our grief returns, our memories of our last relationship are right in our face. Getting what we don't want. Life is full of it. Losing what we have. Anybody lost what they have, what they love? Youth, loved ones. I hear, you know, the older we get, the more loss in our lives, the more we're carrying weights of grief, present, past, old, new, being separated from that which we love, separated from most essentially our, our, our true nature. We, we disconnect from who we really are. We believe all the stories and identities that we take birth in that actually aren't true. And it's really painful to believe those limited stories that come from the critic or elsewhere. And it's just the dukkha of having a mind. I mean, who ordered this mind? And all of its fantasies and distractions and wants and longings. And who ordered this body with its aches and pains and burps and farts and groans? And <laughs> and then there's the dukkha of life. The dukkha of it's just innumerable things. Racism, homophobia, sexism, exploitation. We, can, we could have a list as long as this room. Many different ways that life is hard to bear in ourselves, in each other, culturally, socially, globally. And the invitation, the question, is how are we meeting it? How do we hold that? Do we fight it? Do we hate it? Do we judge it? Do we collapse under it? Do we despair around it? And all of the above at times, do we try to meet it, understand it, take constructive action? Do we surrender? And then the second flavor or aspect of experience of change, of transience. You might have noticed things don't last very long, especially those blissful moments. You know, how many times have you gotten to finally this quiet, lovely place and you go, ah, finally I'm here. Finally it's what I hoped it to be. And then someone sneezes and you go, ah. <laughs> I remember doing this concentration retreat, this long retreat on the East Coast, and you, in con- long concentration retreats, you get the, the good fortune of developing some samadhi, which is very lovely and can be very blissful and deep and delicious. And every day, 
my my samadhi concentration in the afternoon was the best, most most gathered. And this guy would do walking meditation outside in the hallway, and I'd be sort of sitting and you know, just enjoying this lovely places. And I'd hear the footsteps like, oh, "Don't you know <laughs> how good this is?" <laughs> But more seriously, you know, the living with the uncertainty, living with the unreliability of life, of situations, of health, of relationships, of family, of the economy. How many places where we try to look for security and there isn't any? There's a sort of false sense of security. There's the only security there really is. So I've been... Uh, meeting with a, a person here who um, uh, moved here from Costa Rica to uh, to do some healing uh, for breast cancer that went somewhat undetected when she was over there, living over there. And she came over with her husband and they just retired. They built this beautiful house in Costa Rica. They'd had this very beautiful life of service and they were wanting to you know, have a quieter time um, she was over here for getting chemo, and he was coming here to support her. And was that that particular day was coming to Spirit Rock. He takes a walk with his dog just on the hills, maybe two miles away. And uh, there's three or four people who are uh, somewhat drugged out, looking for a car. They see him on the on the the, the path, and he gets killed, just like that just walking his dog on his way to come here to, for a Monday night class, just like that. We never know the uncertainty, the vulnerability, the transience, the tragic transience. You know, many friends of mine live up in Middletown, which is a few hours from here, beautiful hot springs called Harbin Hot Springs. Many of you, I imagine, have been or go or... Um, huge fires swept through. We had two really disastrous fires here recently locally and you know, hundreds and hundreds of homes. I have friends who live on streets where there's no houses. One day they were just getting up and going to work and next day the community is just ravaged. You know? and same true all over the country. Different, different events, different tragedies, partly climate change induced. So we have these radical shakeups, and we're challenged, how do we meet that intensity of suffering? Or we have the, more, the equally challenging where we have maybe a, the slow deterioration with, maybe we have some uh, issue, illness related to aging. A dear friend of mine who's this incredibly healthy, vibrant, organic, green-eating, everything, beautiful man who has Parkinson's. And just seeing that slow, changing prognosis and condition, very, very challenging. So life is asking, how are we meeting these? Can we meet these with tenderness? Right? It is by nature vulnerable to be in this body, subject to change, subject to loss. And as Harry spoke uh, about last night, about the, the third characteristic, which is the selfless nature of things, the empty nature of things, including this 
this mind, body, heart that we'd so cherish to be me. And when we look closely, maybe it's not as solid, isn't as fixed, or as reliable as we thought it was. Wei Wei, the Chinese or philosopher who lived in China, said, Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. not quite how it actually phrased, not like that we don't exist, but who we take ourselves to be is a construct, is how he was speaking about. But to see the pain of that selfing process, how many dramas and catastrophes and scenarios has your mind taken you on this week? You haven't left your little Zabaton, but you've been through, <laughs> you know, divorce and health crises and, you know, losing your money and who knows what, and nothing happened, right? <laughs> except a lot of pain and anxiety and stress and torment. Or how many painful stories have you believed from your critic about who you take yourself to be? Equally painful, if not more painful. So whether we're selfing ourselves, selfing others, that misperception causes a lot of pain. And if we are unable to summon up some quality, some capacity of kindness or tenderness or care or warmth or affection or humility or compassion, it makes all of that so much more difficult. When love, kindness, care infuses our attention, our presence with anything, it makes it more workable, both physically, you know, the presence of kindness and love actually softens and relaxes and eases the nervous system. Sorry about this. and allows us to hold difficult experience with much more capacity. Have you noticed that? That when there's warmth or care or kindness, whether it's dealing with knee pain or sorrow or existential angst, there's, there's, there's more buoyancy or resiliency in our nervous system. Some years ago, I went through a phase of intense anxiety triggered by being in isolation up in a cabin with some nice idea of being a writer in the middle of nowhere, Robinson Crusoe. Um, and it triggered old traumas and, and just a whole slew of things that, that triggered this deep vein of anxiety. And so I left, I came home, and it was, there was also other things in my life that were, were, were very uh, anxiety-provoking. And, um, and it lasted for a long time, as anxiety waves can. You know, it wasn't just a little bad meditation or a bad night. It went on for months. And, um, you know, as we do, tried everything I could to get rid of it. <laughs> didn't work. Tried meditating the way it didn't work. And at some point, this is, you know, after some time, the, it was really clear to me that the only way to 
to bring resolution was to find that capacity of loving presence that was able to soften enough in the presence of the anxiety that it didn't matter whether the anxiety was there or not. That there was enough softening and yielding and holding and opening that whether, whether, whether I woke up in the morning with that big rock of anxiety or not, it was okay. And it was in that, in that capacity to soften and to yield and surrender that actually allowed the slow resolution of that, mm, that conflict. So as I've been asking, how do you respond to your own burden or pain or challenge? There's there's one of my favorite lines from, I'm not sure who said this, but it goes, um, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. We don't know when we meet someone, you know, what their burden is. Maybe when we get to know them well, we do. On retreat, we get to hear a lot about people's burdens. You look around the room, you think everyone looks pretty healthy and happy, but you scratch below the surface. And we know from our own experience and our friends, loved ones' experience, that nobody gets through life without a fair share of burdens, of losses or illnesses or challenges or whatever it is. So Elie Weissel, the Nobel Nobel laureate, wrote, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. Yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can also elevate human beings. Practice helps us to bear our suffering well. Practice helps us to bear our suffering well. So the definition of dukkha, it's unsatisfaction, is difficult to bear, hard to bear. And we're encountering many things that are hard to bear, which is why there's so much emphasis in the tradition on compassion, because it allows that which is hard to bear to be held. Just like when we're holding a distressed child, right? That compassion is holding that child so they can find ease. So in the context of the practice, I'm having a lot of dukkha just with this microphone, I don't know anything else. <laughs> um, this practice, these practices um, give us three, uh, I'd say, essential qualities for working with the uh, challenges in life. One is awareness that allows us to meet and understand and develop wisdom in relationship to our experience. The second is uh, heartfulness, compassionate presence that we bring to experience. And the third is the capacity to respond with compassion, compassionate action. So what is, de- what is compassion? What is compassion to you? Anybody want to say in a few words? Shout out. What is compassion? Means with feeling. Means with feeling. Uh-huh. What else? To suffer along, right? Compassion, to suffer with, right? Comes from the suffering of Christ on the cross, originally. What else? 
Okay, moving right along. Um, <laughs> so this is from His Holiness. He says, Dalai Lama, he says, if you want to know what compassion is, look deeply into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her sick and fevered child. So the Buddha, or somebody talked about it as the quivering of the heart in response to pain. And it's this resonance with another's pain. So that's the first aspect. It's the effective quality. It's the felt sense resonance. We walk into a room, someone's crying, or a loved one we know is upset, and we feel that almost within us, the the compassion to suffer with. We're able to uh, resonate with it. It's an emotional resonance. It's actually the first aspect of empathy is we can resonate with what someone's going through because we know it from our own experience. And the second aspect is um, what in psychology they call cognitive perspective taking, where we can put ourselves in the shoes of the other person. We can sense how it might be to be crying or upset or dealing with some loss or what tragedy or whatever. Right? Because we've been there, we can imagine it from our own experience. So, and this was very um, instructive. I was in Europe last summer in the, the, the sort of the height of the, the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, and just the, the so weeks leading up to that, there was a lot of contention and a lot of conflict with uh, politicians around what to do with this huge migration and there was a lot of fear and um, uh, political maneuvering uh, or, or outright racism or outright not in my backyard. These are not our people or they're going to take our jobs or can we trust them? A lot of fear response from many different countries, including Britain, where I was, who closed the border in, in, in Calais and where there's still now a refugee camp. Uh, 6,000 people waiting to get in. And, um, and then that photo of the boy, the dead Syrian boy, washed up on the shore of, I think, of Lesbos, uh, Bodrum in Turkey. And suddenly there was a shift in perspective because suddenly it went from being a political crises to a humanitarian crisis. That photo allowed people to see the humanity, to see that these people are just like me. They just want safety, refuge. They want a better life for their kids and their families. And we're not so different. And it, and it created this huge upwelling of openness and welcoming from, from most people. And it changed the whole conversation until the until the Paris attacks. And it was just remarkable to see how when something elicits and evokes empathy, in this case it was the photo and the, the videos of the, the father who was completely inconsolable, understandably, and how it just changed the, the feeling, the sentiment. I feel it now, I can feel the the shift that happened, you know, that made it personal, that made it real, allowed people to connect with the humanity and the suffering and the shared human experience. And it was, al- it was people allowing people to turn to, to face the suffering 
and hold it. This is compassion. Compassion is that process coupled with, and what shifts it from empathy to compassion, is the active dynamic aspiration and movement to help to do something to relieve the suffering of another. It's not just a feeling, it's, all, it's, a, it's a verb, it's an action that wishes to relieve and do something to help. So I was at a dinner party some years ago at a friend's house and um, was talking to one of my friend's friends who uh, lived in, lives in partly here and partly in uh, Southeast Asia. And she was uh, doing some, she was a graphic designer and uh, she worked uh, for a company and, and was doing business in Cambodia. And she was, uh, after work, she was in a bar getting a drink and she overheard these two men uh, talking about uh, acquiring a young girl for sex trafficking, for the sex trade, which is pretty, you know, can be, was pretty prolific, or still is probably. And so she went up to them, she challenged them, she was horrified, they were completely dismissive of her. And so she resolved from that day to try and do something to relieve, to, 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 to help the girls who were being uh, involved in the sex trafficking. So she decided to put her design skills to work and she stayed in Cambodia and she set up a, uh, a business, a design business around textiles and um, um, art materials and supplies. And then she hired the young girls and then hired people in the village and it became an incredibly a successful model that then got is now in I think 18 different countries become a very uh, pioneering uh, nonprofit um, and she actually she had this interesting experience she went back to one of the villages and the, the some of the village elders said why are you focusing on the girls what about the boys um, and she said well because the girls need it and one of the things that uh, happens, it was she, she observed, is that you know because of such intense poverty in those some of those villages, which is partly why the trafficking happens. She um, she realized that it was important to find a way for the for the girls to be considered valuable, not as a sex trade asset, but as a, an asset, not not just their humanity, but also what they could contribute. And it was through education. So she then began a, um, edu- you know, an education project that the, the nonprofit would then fund the girls and, um, and the, the, the girls were exceeding the boys in school. Um, and so she went back to this village six months later uh, to talk to the elders who were concerned that she wasn't educating boys. Um, and the conversation had completely shifted because they were seeing what transformation was happening with the girls. It's very beautiful. So that's, that's the compassionate act when we see something and we respond in a very concrete way. And um, I'm not so wild about the word compassion because it, it has con- connotations. I was teaching in... Um, Senegal recently, I was uh, had the privilege of working for um, doing some mindfulness and resiliency work for uh, aid workers who work for the UN's food 
World Food Program, and they work in West Africa and some of the really more challenged countries, challenged through Ebola and Boko Haram and just really intense situations. And these, these people were were really talking about compassion and action. These people had given their lives to going to, they go, they get moved from Liberia to Haiti, back to Pakistan, and then as a breather they get they get to go to the Congo or somewhere like that. And um, I mean, and they're just incredible human beings doing incredible work, taking food aid to the most needy situations. And um, and I was talking about compassion as part of as part of the the training. And uh, there was uh, some French folks in the, uh, there was some, mostly West African and mostly Senegalese, and then there's a few folks from Canada and uh, France. And the French people were sort of sitting back when I was talking about compassion. They're like, it's not good. (laughs) 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 And uh, and they said, this compassion, this is too Christian, you know, suffering of Christ. And and uh, and then these these folks from from Senegal, I was teaching in Dakar, which is the capital, and they said, no, 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 compassion is exactly the right word, you know, because because the, the the French folks wanted to use the word care or you know some word like that, which is you know fair enough, it's a, it's a, it's close enough, and and and, uh, the, and these folks from Senegal, Senegal said, no, 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 care is one flavor of you know where you you know you're helping, but compassion is really this very powerful dynamic force. It's really you know it's so central to what we value in our culture and. It was just very interesting to see the, the different cultural flavors and, um, and just also to feel in the room how much these people lived that. I mean, they really lived that in their work. It was, it was beautiful. So, um, so my, my, my gripe with that word is sometimes that word, when I first encountered that word, I used to think, it, I used to think compassion was so lofty, like it was some, you know, Jesus on the cross kind of, you know, like that's way beyond what I'm going to feel. I might care a little bit, you know, <laughs> on a good day, you know. <laughs> um, and then I came across this cartoon by uh, Gary Larson, who's a great Dharma teacher, who does the far side cartoons. And the cartoon is, he's in, the picture was of hell, and we're in, in the, the fiery dens of hell, and Satan's shouting to his mom, no, mom, no. And underneath the caption of Satan and mom with the horns and is this description that says, despite his repeated efforts to res- refrain, to restrain his mother, um, he could never prevent his mother from offering cookies and milk to the freshly accursed. <laughs> And so she's there with a little tray. She's got a tail and the horns, and there's a, you know cookies, milk to the fresh recruits coming into into hell. You know, it's it. So this is it's innate, right? This responsiveness, right? Someone falls down in front of you, you don't stop to think, hmm, this is interesting. They've fallen down, noting, noting, falling, falling. No, you're right down there. You don't even think about it. Right? It's a beautiful movement of the heart when the heart is un when the heart is free and unburdened, right, the more responsive it becomes. Which is why as we unburden ourselves through practice, we become, we, we grow that capacity to care, we grow that capacity to respond, and not only do we grow the capacity, we also grow the, um, the desire to 
have our life move more in that direction. And Harry and I were talking about this in, in a meal over lunch to this week. Um, I forget how it came up, but that as the 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 inner turmoils lessen, and as the self preoccupation becomes less fascinating, and what remains, um, or one of the things that remains, is a desire to serve, desire to to shift attention from this to how can I help? How can I serve? How can I help relieve suffering? You know, it's certainly very part of the tradition that the, you know, and particularly in the later Buddhist traditions, this emphasis on uh, shifting our orientation from our, for our practice, not to, to just taking care of this, but what about this? What about how do we move in the world? How do we bring these qualities to make a very active, dynamic difference in the world to relieve suffering? And as I keep saying, it also keeps, it starts here. Our work is so much here that, that then frees up that to move in skillful ways. So I'm just going to read a little story about that just because it's my favorite Dharmat story. So a man's in the grocery store and he's uh, observing this woman and doing a shopping with her little girl in the shopping cart and uh, they're walking around and he's noticing that they're having a little, you know, something because they're in the cookie aisle and the little kid's wanting cookies and uh, her mom says, um, uh, no, you're not going to have any. And the, 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 the little kid has a tantrum and uh, the mother says, now, Monica, we just have th- half of the hours left to go through now. Don't be upset. It won't be long. And then he bumps into them again and they're at the uh, candy aisle and it's like, oh, and, the, and, the, and again, the child's told, no, she's not going to have any, any candy and has a little meltdown. And the mother again says, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go. Then we'll be checking out. And then when they get to the checkout stand, of course, there's more stuff there that's, you know, designed to have these conflicts. And, um, and again, the mother says no. And of course, there's a big hysterical fit happens. And again, the mother patiently says, Monica will be through the checkout stand in five minutes. Then you can go home and have a nice nap. And the man is also close by and he's very impressed by how well this mother's handling this very difficult situation with her, with her child, Monica. And so he follows them out to the parking lot to compliment her and he says, I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica there, he began. Whereupon the mother says, what do you mean? My, little's girl, my little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. <laughs> so that's kind of the practice of, you know... There, 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 there. Only two more meditations to go, and then we'll be in bed. There, there. Only one more meditation to go. You know, three more breaths. Yes, you know. So, that's how it goes, right? You know, slowly, slowly, baby steps. So, one thing that's really instructive to remember, and I was sort of reminding this to somebody in a group uh, who was having the harrowing retreat, um, is that as as much as we don't want our pain and our difficulties and our challenges and our dark nights of the soul and our, and our dukkha retreats and our whatever it is condition that we have, 
It's those grappling with those challenges and difficulties and pains and struggles are usually where we transform the most, where we heal the most, where we also grow the most. So as much as we wouldn't wish it on anybody, let alone ourselves, if we look back at our life and where we've really made transformation, it's usually in the harder times, in the loss, in the defeat, in the despair, in the failures. So to remember that when you're you're going through these difficult places, that that this is also, it's, it's how humans grow. Not the only way, but a significant way. So I want to read this piece from um, Darlene Cohen, who is a, is, was a uh, meditation teacher, a Zen teacher, and um, uh, had a slow, crippling uh, illness for, for many, many years. And she writes, People ask me where my healing energy comes from and how in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, can I encourage myself and others in my teaching? And she, she says, The answer is, from my, the answer is that my healing comes from my own despair, from the shadow I dip into again and again. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around this wheel a million times. First there's the tug, there's the pain. I feel it, I deny it. Then its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. And finally overwhelms me and pulls me down. It's clear I'm caught, and at last I surrender with this darker aspect of my adjustment to pain. Immediately the release begins, first peace and then a flood of vitality and healing energy. However, I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a good outcome, I would give up right away and say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can, I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair or something. If you went willingly, it would be called something like purification. It's staring this defeat and challenge in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist till it overwhelms me and I surrender, but I've come to trust it completely. It enriches my life, informs my work, and teaches me not to fear the hardship. It's a beautiful journey that 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 freedom and that realization has come from work, from, you know, you know, day after day, working with fear, working with physical pain, working with that intimate challenge. And so that's why I keep asking this question, how do you meet? How do you turn? How do you open to that which is hard to bear? We always will have, at times, things that are hard to bear, probably daily. So how do we meet it? Do we hate it, judge it, reject it, think we're doing something wrong, think we're, we're victimized by life? Or do we have the capacity to, to find some openness, to let it transform us? So this is another story. This is of, of how someone meets the pain of another, which is, you know, it can go either way. Compassion is a swing door. And the principle is the same, how we meet, how we turn towards. So this is a story of, um, uh, written by a surgeon who, um, well, I'll just read this story. It's a better one. It's read. <clears throat> so I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her m- mouth twisted in a palsy, clownish 
gesture. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. As surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed together, and they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me in private. Who are they, I ask myself? He and this wry mouth who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked, crooked mouth, and I'm so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and I let the wonder in. So again, this compassion is re- responsiveness, it's tender, it's attuned, it's loving. So maybe an interesting question to hold is, where is this compassion being called for in my life? Where do I respond and where do I pull back? The the, the, the need, the pull, the tugs are everywhere. Personally, community, socially, globally, internally. So in Thailand, in the, in the, uh, I assume these were monks from the Thai forest tradition, who's mo- mostly their monasteries are in the forest, in the jungles, that when they realized how much devastation was happening to the rainforest, how many of the beautiful hardwoods, the teaks and other trees were being cut down, these really old giants of the forest, they went round and started ordaining the trees so they'd be protected from the loggers. And this was one responsiveness to the suffering of the world in a very real way. So when Thich Nhat Hanh was in Vietnam during the war, he was doing a lot of his service work out in the community, out in the villages, helping rebuild the schools. He was working in one school as a monk with his nuns and and, and monks. And they rebuilt a school four times. Each time we'd get bombed by one side or the other side. They were being attacked from both sides because they refused to, to, to have allegiance with either side. And even at night, he would ask his, his, his students, can, when you go to the garden, can you smell the herbs? Can you still be here amidst the torment, amidst this challenge? And can you still uh, keep your heart open? This beautiful work done by Bernie Glasman, who's a Zen monk who... Uh, practiced in New York and in Yonkers and does this a uh, lot of work with the homeless and uh, does street retreats, takes people out of these cozy confines and you do a retreat outside for five days. My friend just did one in San Francisco um, where you're learning to um, respond and meet the suffering right on the street, right on our doorsteps. So where, does, where is compassion 
needed, where, how can you respond? This is a, a poem from Mary Oliver who says, on cold evenings, my grandmother with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor so she said the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for for myself but being struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left that loving? You know, sometimes in as people age, you know, what's left is the, 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 the cognitive clarity may become impaired, but the essence is often there. And often what's there is what we practice. And if we practice love and sweetness and tenderness and kindness, that's often what remains. And I've, I've seen that. I've seen that in, in, in relatives and uh, elsewhere. So the, the, this, this seemingly quiet, introspective practice that can seem you know, in this context of silence that seems so removed or cloistered from each other in the world actually allows us to um, to work with the obstacles that occlude and and shudder the heart that actually allows us when we do go back to our homes and work and families and wherever we go back to it actually allows that heart to be more accessible, more responsive, more uh, available. And what a beautiful thing, and Lord knows, does the world need nothing more than more compassion? We don't need more religion. We don't need more war. We don't need any more views. We need kindness. We need people actively caring for each other. So I think I'll close with a little bedtime story. Um, since you're, since we're ending the retreat tomorrow, and uh, do you know that we're ending the retreat tomorrow? Just in case you hadn't forgotten that piece. Um, well, we're going home anyway. You can stay if you like. I don't know. Actually, some of you are staying. That's good. Good news. There's a retreat happening on Monday, and some of you are staying. It's fabulous. I'd like to join it myself. So this is a story. So I love this story. I, I, there's usually a few stories that I share that I haven't shared this this talk with. Um, and the stories that touch me are often the stories that are very simple. And it's not about some grand gesture of, oh, I'm so compassionate and I'm loving. It's just human beings showing up, being present, and doing the next thing. You know, And it's usually the very simplest things are often the most compassionate things. So this is by the Palestinian poet Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Wandering Around an Albuquerque Airport Terminal. Where some of you might be going back to. I spent many, many hours in Albuquerque Airport Terminal. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement, if anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, doesn't one? Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there, an older Palestinian, uh, a woman in full traditional dress, just like my grandma wore, was there, crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's the problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. 
I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, 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 we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called our son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I'd stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her. She talked to him and then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. And they t- Then we called my dad and, he, and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? <laughs> this all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling us about her life, answering questions. She pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered, sugared, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the woman from Loretto, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar, all smiling. There were no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic, and the two little girls from our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice. And they were also covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed now my best, new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing, with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition. Always carry a plant, always be rooted to somewhere. And I looked around the gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in the gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, had seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen everywhere, anywhere. Not everything is lost. So let's sit together. May all beings live with a heart of compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.